0: Welcome to the Spartan Underground Show, your ultimate resource for everything Spartan race training. Discover what the best SGX coaches are doing to help their clients boost performance, dominate obstacles, and get through each race burpee free. Here is your host, Mike Diebler. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is XGX coach Mike Diebler, and welcome to the Underground SGX Show. This is episode number 27. If you want to check out any of the links mentioned in the show, just head on over to spartanunderground.com episode 27. I want to take a minute to thank some of our sponsors. First up is Mobilitas. They are trying to make some of the best myofascial release tools on the planet. And what makes them different is these are incredibly durable products. I don't know if you've had much experience with kind of your traditional foam rollers, but a lot of times they do start to fall apart. These are are incredibly durable. They last. They're battle-tested. And they have um, a texture to them, so they actually grip to your skin, and they don't slide around on the floor if you're on the wall or wherever you might be rolling. Uh, So check out some of their products. They make awesome foam rollers. Uh, mobility spheres and peanuts, and more products coming soon. But you can check it all out at hurt.com. And also wanted to thank Designer Protein for supporting the show. They make a wide variety of protein products, from plant-based to whey protein. In fact, I made a smoothie today with a couple of their different products. Um, I used a uh, Essential Greens powder, Ancient Grains powder. And then a grass-fed whey protein all mixed in with some strawberries, uh, almond butter, and almond milk. And it was pretty delicious. So you can check out all of their products at designerprotein.com. Don't forget, you get a 20% discount for being a listener of the show. Just use the promo code SDPREMERE20. And I'll put a link to that in this episode's show notes. We have a jam-packed episode, so let's get right into it. In this episode, we have SGX coach Mark Barroso on to give us our Spartan race recap. He was at the uh, Greek peak and actually did the sprint and the hurricane heat. So he gives us his review of the two races there. In our research uh, review, we are going to go over polarized versus threshold training, basically high intensity versus low intensity, and why most people spend too much time in that moderate intensity training zone. So we're going to talk all about that in our research review. And we also have SGX coach and registered dietitian Anne LaRue on, fresh off of her second place finish at the Greek Peak uh, this past weekend. And she's on to talk about a recent blog post she did for Spartan.com. She's going to talk about some of the biggest lies everyone believes about dieting. And this is going to be part one. And in the next episode, we'll have part two where she talks about the truths. And finally, in our SGX Coaches interview, I have on Coach Chris Judy from RFT Coaching. And I have to say, this is a pretty awesome interview, and you're not going to want to miss this one. He provides so much valuable content and strategies and tips, and he basically lays out his whole system and some of the things he's doing with his elite competitors and uh, something he calls the Endurance Pyramid and really a step-by-step process on how you need to build endurance the right way and build a solid foundation so you can maximize performance for the long haul and even gets into how long before you should be, uh, before a race you should be, planning out your program, um, and a lot of very specific details. So definitely stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Uh, That being said, let's get to today's show.
1: Hey, what's up, Spartan Underground? This is Mark Barroso, NSCA CPT, and Spartan SGX coach. I'm here to recap my weekend over at Creek Peak in Cortland, New York. I ran the Spartan Sprint and the Hurricane Heat. So, we'll start with the sprint. The entire course was in the snow, so it was a race through the snow. The obstacles in the cold were fine. Um, I layered up properly for both events, the Hurricane Heat and the sprint, so... Um, the obstacles in the cold, the rig was just fine. It were gloves, so the rig was just gymnastics rings, so no nunchucks or circular baseballs or anything. So I completed all those obstacles, every obstacle, including the rig, including the spear throw. Um, the bucket brigade was not up a huge hill like it usually is. It was more like a longer-distance trail carry, um, the sandbag did have some inclines, sandbag carry, so I would say to train for this event, you definitely want to practice heavy carries, that being the sandbag carry and the bucket brigade. Actually, training with a bucket, I think at a certain point, people have to start training with a bucket or just a huge rock, training with a huge rock. So that's running with a rock, lunging with a rock. I would say that overall the race went fine. It was a little slippery in the snow. Um, I wore a Camelback hydration pack for that course and the hose froze. And then that's a perfect segue into the hurricane heat where I wore an Osprey pack hydration pack and my hose froze again. So the water itself didn't freeze, just the hose, but that's annoying because you have to open your pack just to get to the water. So during the hurricane heat, Um, There were some individual, it lasted about four hours, there were some individual um, relay races. So there was 61 people divided into five different teams and each team would line up and we would have a relay race. So one was a bucket brigade race where we did the bucket brigade exactly as the morning just with less rocks in the bucket and it was a race. So people were like sprinting with buckets. We had a spear throw competition. That was fun. Where we picked the best spear throw athletes, technicians from each group of five to go against each other. And then we had a human sled drag race where a person would sit on the sled and then the team had to drag that person on the sled drag. And then they had to pull the sled back and then the next person went on top of the sled. So the entire team individually had to be pulled on the sled. So... I would say to prepare for a hurricane heat, a four hour one, definitely want to bring some snacks, some jerky, um, protein bars, almonds. And for a colder race, bring a water bottle, like a Nalgene one that won't freeze. So bring, or maybe it's a metal bottle, bring something that is not going to freeze in the cold, like not a hydration pack, just uh, so I guess a, a backpack. That has enough room for you know a pelican case, a hard case, and a water bottle that's not going to freeze. So that's that was the nature of the hurricane heat. And in addition to those little um, you know head-to-head competitions, there was also just manual labor. So moving a ton of sandbags from one spot to the other so everyone was making multiple trips carrying sandbags from one spot to the other and carrying huge crates for the sandbags you know those huge crates they carry the sandbags and we moved those as well um, so that was interesting and then there was some personal PT so um, bucket burpees which were difficult 8 count bodybuilders things like that so yeah overall both events went smoothly The course was perfectly designed, there was no actual water obstacle, the dunk wall was kind of a slide through the snow, and I had a great time, so I hope that you guys would consider signing up for um, the next winter race that there is. Thanks, bye.
0: All right, it's time for the research review. And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know I like to stress the idea of having a purpose or having a goal behind every workout. And many times people just get out and go on a run or push themselves and they just try and go as hard as they can for as long as they can. And while you'll see a benefit to doing something like this, this is going to get you in trouble, most likely down the road, or at least you're just not going to see the return from your investment in that type of workout. And many people push themselves, push themselves, and then they end up getting hurt. So I wanted to look at um, something called polarized versus threshold training. Now we've talked about threshold training before, and I'm not saying this is bad. And what I'm saying is that if you spend too much time with threshold training, you might get in trouble. So we have threshold versus polarized. Now threshold is that moderate to moderately hard workouts where you're pushing it pretty hard. You're not going all out, um, but you're not taking it too low intensity. So it's kind of in that middle area versus polarized where you still hit higher intensities but you actually spend uh, the majority of your training in lower intensities. So I wanted to look at a couple studies that looked at the different types of training intensities and how they resulted in performance and the first one was from the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sport back in 2004 and what they did here was they took 12 elite cross-country skiers. So there's I know we're not exactly a spartan race but still it was an endurance sport Um, these guys were the best in their field and what they did was over 32 days they basically logged all of their workouts and they developed three zones and depending on who you talk to there's lots of different zones that you can get into for intensity but i like the three zone method it's pretty simple so we have our zone one two and three and it's basically a low intensity a low intensity a moderate intensity and then a, a high intensity and there's a lot of different ways you can break up These types of zones, you can use heart rate, uh, rating of perceived exertion, blood lactate levels, all different things there. So they use the combination to find out what exactly zone each athlete was training in um, for how long. So uh, kind of a simple way, if we looked at rating of perceived exertion, if I look at zone one, that's kind of from a one to four. If we're using a scale one to ten, where one is basically at rest and four is somewhat hard that would be our zone one category. So fairly lower intensities. Then we have our zone two, this is like a five or a six. So you're hitting hard intensities, moderate to hard. And then finally, we have zone three. Now we're hitting very hard. Uh, So this is seven, seven, eight, nine, and 10 levels. So you're hitting very hard to maximal intensities there. Uh, So that's a simple way to break up these three different training intensities. There's also something using ventilatory threshold. This is where you start to notice changes in your breath. You may have heard of something like the talk test. So as you're running, as you increase intensity, all of a sudden your talk gets slightly disrupted where you have to take a few more breaths in between talks. That's you're hitting your your VT1 or ventilatory threshold 1. That's kind of where you're hitting the end of that zone 1 and started to get into zone 2. Then you have your VT2 where breathing is becoming Uh, More laborious and you're having a hard time talking, now you're hitting that zone three category. So that's another way that we can divide this up. But back to this study, Uh, essentially what they did is over 32 days, they analyzed all of the workouts of these elite endurance athletes, and they found how much time they would spend in each training zones. And for what they found was they spent 75% of their time in zone one, five to 10% of their time in zone two, and then 15 to 20 percent of their time in Zone Three, and that might not sound that might sound surprising. They spent over three or around three quarters of the time in that lower intensity training zone. While you might not be an elite athlete, you can get a lot of information by observing some of the common practices of these types of athletes. I wanted to look at one more study. This is from the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, Conditioning Research in 2007, and they did a very similar thing, mm-hmm. but they broke. a a group of runners into two groups and they kind of had the same uh, training programs that we were referring to earlier where they did more of a polarized program and that's you know the lower intensity that they spent most of their time they broke it down where they did 80 percent of their training in that zone one training about 12 percent in that zone two and then eight percent in that high intensity zone three versus more of that threshold training group that did 67% of their time in Zone 1, 25% of their time in Zone 2, and then uh, 8% in Zone 3. So they tried to keep that high intensity equal to help control some of the variables there. And then they just observed after five months of training, what differences they saw in this type of uh, protocol. I do wanna mention in this study, they used heart rate to determine whether they were in the correct zone or not. So again, there's different ways to do it, but they used heart rate here. And what they found was over the five-month training protocol, the polarized group, the one that spent most of their time in low-intensity training, actually saw better improvements in their 10K time trial. So they ran a 10K before and after this training method, and they saw 160-second improvements, which is pretty impressive. And especially this, work, again, was higher-level athletes, so to get gains is harder and harder. So they saw 160-second faster improvements in their 10k time trial versus the uh, threshold group saw 120 seconds. So again, not saying the other group is bad. They did see an improvement, but 40 seconds is a pretty significant difference. So one, they took, uh, took it easier, you could say, and they actually spent more time in low intensity, yet saw faster improvements or better improvements in their 10k time trial. And what you want to take away from this is, one, it obviously depends where you are in your training cycle. If you're more off-season, in-season, that'll definitely factor into this. Um, and in four of these studies, they were primarily looking in off-season training. So as you get closer to your races, you're probably going to ramp it up and do more high intensity work with less mileage in there. But again, uh, that's a story for another podcast. But I think the main point is don't get stuck in those garbage miles where you're just stuck at a, a moderate to hard intensity and you're you're doing that over and over again. Some workouts, you should end it feeling good and like you could have done a lot more. The goal of every work is, workout is not to empty the tank and push yourself as hard as possible. You want to follow that high-low method where, yes, you do hit some high-intensity workouts, but you're also going to hit some low-intensity. And when you do that, you'll notice your high intensities are truly at higher intensities where A lot of times when you're constantly hitting harder intensities you may feel like it's hard but really you're not training to the level that you need to get these benefits there all right so uh, listen to the interview with SGX coach Chris Judy he's going to get into even more detail on this but for your own program just try and keep it simple and make sure you are doing a little bit more low intensity and not getting stuck in that middle zone
2: Hey, Spartans. What's going on? SGX coach and registered dietitian Anne LaRue back to talk with you about some more nutrition topics. Uh, Spartan race season is underway. I have my first race coming up, the Greek Peak, this weekend. Very excited about that. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work ahead of time with my coach and trainer, Kieran McCormick, working on a lot of different type of trainings to help him. In- build my endurance, um, beginning to work on some speed work, and really taking a whole separate approach this year as opposed to last year when I was giving it my all and training a lot but without a designated plan. So this year I'm really excited to see how much further I can go because I actually did it a lot more methodical. didn't want to approach it with the same old approaches before, but really wanted to put some effort in to make sure that I could get the biggest bang for my buck and really see how far I could push myself. So I'll have to keep you guys posted on that. But in that same way, people are often surprised, I think, to hear that anybody that that is a trainer and a coach themselves also has somebody that's coaching them. Um, some people that's very routine and they they get it and they understand the importance. But there's a lot of people that maybe new to the fitness world or new to Spartan races that are surprised to hear that you yourself actually look to somebody else for information and guidance and things like that. And I think it's important to make sure that people are aware that we all have to look towards somebody in order to keep pushing ourselves harder. If I knew everything that I needed to know and I was the best that I could possibly be, I would be standing up there on the podium. I would be competing side-by-side with Lindsay Webster, Face Stenning, Rose, Amelia, all of them, but I'm not. I'm trying to. I'm trying to catch them, um, but I'm not, I'm not there, and there's plenty of people in between me and them. So really trying to look towards people that know more than I do and really take all of their guidance, all of their suggestions, recommendations, and plans and put them into play for myself so that I can become better, but I have to be willing to step aside and learn from somebody else in order to do that. So it's really awesome, uh, Mike, to put these podcasts together because this is a way that we can all be learning from each other, that we can all be looking and saying, okay, I may be doing well, I know I can do better, and I have to look towards others. So really excited to be here and to perhaps be that... um, person that you look to for more nutrition information and how to get your diet on track for the race season. So thanks for being here with me today, and thanks again to Mike for having me on. Always honored to be asked to speak on any of these topics. So let's dive right in. I thought today that I would actually go back to one of the blogs that was on Spartan's website that I did that was titled 10 Lies Everyone Believes About Dieting plus five truths that we all need to know. Now, I'm not going to go through all 15 of those because that would take a lot of time. And also, uh, you know, you can get that by going to the website and clicking on that blog and reading the rest of those. But what I thought I would do is at least go through a few of each of them, perhaps going through five of the lies that are probably the most important and then going through a couple of the most important truths. And then you guys can go definitely follow the link and go to the blog and read through it yourself. And as always, if you have any questions, you can always contact me individually and ask them and we can individualize it to you. So I'll try to go through some of the lies that I think is probably most pertinent to the people that are listening to this podcast. So the first one I'll go towards is, I'll go with lie number two which was, if I work out, I can eat whatever I want. And I think the first time I heard this lie was when I was back in the Navy and I was dating a guy who said, I work out so I can go to McDonald's whenever I want, which may have been true from the aspect of he was burning those calories so therefore could replace them with whatever foods that he so chews as far as calories. But from an overall nutrition perspective, this was not helping his performance. This was not helping his body to heal faster. This was not necessarily helping him to maintain that lean muscle and cut down on his overall fat mass. Calories are calories, yes and no. So if I burn 500 calories in doing an activity, that would reason to believe that I can eat 500 calories and I shouldn't gain any weight. Now, is that likely to be true? In a sense, however, if all of those calories primarily come from one nutrient, I may not need 500 calories worth of fat, or I may not need 500 calories primarily made up of protein, especially because my body can only utilize so much of each of those carbs, proteins, and fats at one given time. And too much from one macronutrient, my body's going to say, geez, I really don't need this right now. I'm going to store this and I need these calories over here from the carbs. So for one thing is we want to make sure that we're getting those calories from different macronutrients of appropriate ratios. And I think most people understand that. But also what we want to keep in mind is where are those calories coming from as far as a easily broken down, readily to use fuel that doesn't aggravate the body, right? So if I... Do a majorly wrong one of my long treadmill runs, or what, or as the snow melts, one of my really long trail runs, and I burn a thousand calories. Could I eat a thousand calories worth of chocolate cake? Yes, I would love to. However, that high sugar content is really going to aggravate my blood sugars. It's going to cause increased inflammation, and those calories from sugar are not going to come with any additional nutrients that I need. They're not going to come with calcium, iron, magnesium, potassium in the ratios that I want that might come from a better source, such as having a banana with my delicious chocolate avocado spread on top of it that's giving me healthy fats and protein. And not only that, but my body knows how to break down and utilize avocados and bananas very easily. It does not know how to, how to, or it does not enjoy having to break down a piece of cake and try to metabolize all those fats and sugars. So it may have tasted good on my taste buds, but once it got in my body, it was wreaking havoc. And if I just came back from a long workout or a long run, I already wreaked havoc on my body. I already put it through hell and my mind kept it going, right? We know that. We're pushing our body to the limit, but our mind is saying, yes, I can. I'm going to keep going how come afterwards we would choose to eat a whole bunch of garbage that aggravates the body even more so? When we get to the end of the race, we love that finisher's medal and we love being able to say we did the race. We want people to say, hey, good job, here's your medal. We want to feel rewarded for the hard efforts that we just put in. Don't we want the same for our body? Don't you think if our body could speak, it would say, please give me something good that I can utilize and replenish myself? it wouldn't say, give me a whole bunch of heavy fats and aggravating sugars that I will somehow try to break down, but it's going to be a hell of a hard work for me to do so. And I'm not really going to get much nutrition from it either. I, I, really, I think if we could ask the body that, we'd be interested to hear what it had to say. So here's another lie that I hear or misconception that people have is that they should avoid carbohydrates. Now, the amount of carbohydrates that each individual needs is going to be based around what their workouts are looking like. Um, So if you're more into the cardio or perhaps you're training for a longer race or you have more frequent or longer duration runs, those carbohydrates may come into play more so than somebody who is doing shorter races, not running a lot, doesn't like to run, prefers doing more, um, prefers doing more strength-based. Perhaps they won't need as many carbs. But we all need a certain amount of carbohydrates to be able to have easily, easy-to-use um, energy stores for the body. Carbohydrates are the only fuel for our brain to utilize, and carbohydrates provo- provide a lot of vitamins, minerals, and healthy fibers that we can't get from other foods. There are vitamins and minerals that are in carbohydrate food sources that we can't get from proteins and fats. So it is important to include those carbohydrates if we really wanna be fueled for our activity. Yes, some bodies may be more efficient, may be trained to be more efficient at utilizing fats than they are carbohydrates, but that doesn't mean that that person doesn't need them. A lot of times, what I have to clarify with people is you know, we don't want to put all foods into this bucket of saying carbohydrates and not being clear, especially as as SGX coaches saying things like, oh, you should avoid carbohydrates, you should limit carbohydrates. It's important for me as a dietitian to find out from people when they say that, what exactly do you mean? Do you mean cutting down on processed foods such as um, cereals, breads, pastas that have been, um, they're not made from whole grains, they're not a good source of fiber, and they're highly processed, Um, and also things like crackers and cookies um, and items like that, Pop-Tarts and whatnot, do you mean cutting that out from your daily overall nutrition? Because if you mean processed, packaged carbohydrates, then absolutely, yes, we want to cut those out. We want to try to eliminate them because they're not giving us very good nutrition. So for the most part, we want to cut those out. But just saying carbohydrates also does encompass things like whole grain breads, like whole grain pastas, um, oats and cereals that we can have benefits from and can fit nicely into our overall diet, as well as all the fruits and starchy vegetables, which with every different color of those, we get different nutrition from those, very important. So I often wonder when people say, Oh no! You should you should avoid carbohydrates. We want to be especially clear with the people that we're coaching. What do we mean when we say carbohydrates? Because if we do just mean cutting out those processed foods with that, that don't come with nutrition, it's important for us to remember that when we talk to the people that we're coaching, they don't automatically get that and understand that. And so when they go looking and they go home and they and they Google, you know what foods are carbohydrates, and some of the things that are going to pop up are beneficial, I think it's important for us to do our due diligence and make sure that that our clients understand what we mean when we say that. Um, And from there, really making sure that they understand that they do need carbohydrates. They're they're an important fuel source. Now we have to figure out for that individual how many carbohydrates do you need in a day. Because as I said originally, looking at someone's length, duration, duration, And type of training is going to factor into just how many grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight that they actually need. Let's pop quickly to um, any weight loss is good weight loss, which kind of goes along the lines of fewer calories equals faster weight loss. We want to keep in mind that all weight loss is not good weight loss if it's happening because we're not taking in enough calories to support what the body needs, meaning We've increased, our, we've increased our activity and we've cut back on some of our unhealthy food options, but now we're not adding in enough of the healthy foods to meet our body's calorie needs. And what has happened as a result is our body has had to break down our calorie-burning lean muscle mass in order to fuel ourselves through these longer workouts. So what we want to make sure people understand is if you're losing weight... We need to make sure that you're losing excess fat and not breaking down lean muscle when we're losing that weight. I find that this comes from people who say, oh, you know, I lost 10 pounds, but then I gained back 20. Well, probably that's because some of that weight that you were losing initially was actually losing lean muscle mass. And then when you went back to eating the same exact way as before, you your body was burning calories at a lower rate because you lost lean muscle. One of the best things that you can do, one of the fitness centers that I work at has a body composition analysis machine, and it actually uses ultrasound to be able to measure the amount of lean muscle mass that somebody has as compared to fat mass. And so what we're able to do is we're able to take a snapshot with the ultrasound machine when they first start working with us and we're able to see, okay, how much of your body weight is made up of lean muscle, how much is your healthy fat that you have, and how much is excess fat that we can expect to lose. If we schedule a repeat ultrasound for three or six months later, and we see that their lean muscle mass amount has gone down more than we want it to, so if it's moved a little bit, that's understandable, but if it's gone down substantially or even moderately, then we're able to see, okay, you're not taking in enough calories to support your weight loss while retaining that lean muscle. And that's huge because the number on the scale may be going down, but if that number is going down because you're losing lean muscle, then we're just setting up that client for failure later on when they start to regain some of their weight. I quickly want to mention the two about avoiding all fat and avoiding all dairy. Um, I have a blog that's going to be coming out in the next month or so from Spartan that's going to be breaking down some of the new research that's going on with saturated fats and especially saturated fats that are found in dairy when we're looking at recommending skim, 1% or whole fat milk and who is that appropriate for. Um, Dairy foods and high fat foods are not the enemy especially dairy, a lot of people say, well, there's sugar in dairy and dairy has fat. If you don't have a lactose intolerance and if otherwise your diet is well-balanced, the sugars and the fats that are found in milk are not ones that we're necessarily worried about. Plus, dairy has protein, calcium, and vitamin D that are all very, very essential. And once you cut those out, you just need to make sure that you are incorporating foods that are going to help get you those benefits. Dairy is another word like carbohydrates, that we need to make sure that we're being wise with our clients as we're coaching them, that if we're saying, oh, dairy is really not a good food source, we need to be a little bit more specific because things like milk, cottage cheese, Greek yogurts, yogurts, those are all fine. It's when we break into dairy such as ice cream, cheese, Butter, those are the sorts of dairy items that we want people to avoid, but let's not put them all into a bucket, right? And then the last um, lie that I want to talk about is these words, cleanse, detox, things like that. Um, Those are often done by people sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month, sometimes when they're feeling like they need it. We want to keep in mind that our body has a liver, and that's what it's meant to do is detox especially if you're having an overall healthy diet, you shouldn't have a need to detox. We don't want anybody to detox um, and go on extreme cleanses if they're doing it because their overall food habits are just so terrible that they're trying to help their body out by taking two or three days and doing a complete cleanse. If you're doing that and you're otherwise going through and eating fast food all the time and soda and drinking a bunch of alcohol, then don't fool yourself into the fact that those cleanses are doing anything beneficial for you. The real problem is that you're treating your body like crap otherwise, right? And that's what we need to stop. So the, the, the theory around a detox and a cleanse for somebody who eats horribly as is, what's the point? On the other hand, a cleanse or a detox for somebody who's overall eating well eating balanced fruits, veggies, you know, whole grains, they're eating lean proteins, they're eating healthy fats, then why on earth would we need a cleanse or a detox? Because we're treating the body well. If you're hydrating with the appropriate amount of water that you need, your liver is detoxing everything that it needs from the body as is. If your overall approach to your nutrition is good, you don't need to put yourself... Through a cleanse or a detox or anything like that. So I'm not really sure if somebody could, you know, write into me and let me know a really good reason why they're cleansing and detoxing. I understand sometimes that people say that they feel great afterwards. However, if you do a cleanse or a detox for a couple days and you feel great after, I want to talk to you about what it was that you were doing before. Because it's, more, it's, it's less likely that it was actually the cleanse or the detox that made you feel great. It's the fact that you stopped doing something before that wasn't making you feel great. And if that was tied to unhealthy food choices, then, then that's really what we want to change. Because you doing a cleanse or a detox to feel good is actually almost bordering on, some, on a slight eating disorder. Because what you're doing is you're counteracting your poor eating habits by doing an extreme eating measure to counteract it instead of fixing the problem of that poor eating habit. So that's when it kind of verges on an eating disorder because it's disor- it's a disordered style of eating. Right? So those are some of the lies that we often that I often come into contact with with people with my clients with the people that i'm working with and as a coaching community we really want to try to make sure that we're not contributing to these lies that we're really looking at the root cause of what's going on with somebody um, versus just giving blanket statements and saying oh you should you should avoid this or you should do that right if we can if we can get to the bottom of those lies and clarify things for people then the ability for it to last lifelong um, that that just rises the capabilities of doing it
0: All right, it is time for the SGX Coaches interview, and I have on Coach Chris Judy from RFT Coaching. Chris comes from an endurance background and a military background. He raced bicycles for over 20 years, competing in both U.S. and Europe, and his career eventually went to the military, where he served our country for 10 years, being deployed in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Chris competes in a number of different obstacle course races as well as trains some high-level elite obstacle course racers. On top of being a Spartan SGX coach, he's currently finishing up his bachelor's in exercises in sports science at the University of Utah. All right, well, Coach Chris, how are you doing today? Doing well.
3: How are you doing, Mike?
0: I'm awesome. Thank you so much for jumping on the call. I know you're going to give us some awesome insight into your training strategies that you use with your clients that our listeners are going to get some great um, great tips and strategies to build their training off of. But before we get into too much detail, let our listeners know just a little bit more about you and kind of how you got into RFT coaching.
3: Okay. Um, so I started out with cycling. I started racing bikes when I was seven years old. Uh, went through BMX, mountain bikes, and then finally settled on road. I uh, turned pro back in 2000, 2008 with DLP Pro Cycling. Uh, spent a year over in Europe racing in Belgium uh, Race with JBCA over there, and then uh, you know I spent spent a lot of time actually coaching as well. You know, coaching, uh, mentoring junior athletes and things, and kind of cut my teeth that way uh, when it comes to endurance coaching. And then um, I also have a military background, so I spent ten years in the service after uh, after the professional cycling career was was done. So you know, I've got I've got a lot of <laughs> a lot of different options to choose from as far as when it comes to training and uh, and different ideas.
0: Awesome. So what exactly is RFT coaching?
3: So RFT coaching, RFT stands for realistic functional training. Um, what we do is we pretty much focus on things that need to be used outside. So when we coach our athletes, we our first question is always, okay, what do you want to do with this? And then we kind of steer them toward the direction of whatever class that would suit their, their needs best. Um, currently our mountain fitness, it tends to be our most popular as well as our most functional for most people, but we also have the Spartan classes as well that are more tuned toward the, uh, the Spartan races and really any other obstacle course race that you can think of. Um, but yeah, uh, and RFT coaching has since evolved a little bit more. In fact, we've taken on elite teams. Like, so now we've got our own uh, professional OCR team, as well as uh, we handle the strength and conditioning coaching for the University of Utah rugby team.
0: Awesome. So, how did that come about with the uh, elite elite coaching program?
3: So, you know, I'd coached at other gyms before, and I kind of saw what other people were doing, and you know, nobody was really following the rules of endurance coaching. Mm-hmm. You know, when it came to uh, OCR, everybody kind of follows more toward that idea of like CrossFit esque, the high intensity. Uh, Maybe heavy lifting and then running is kind of like a byproduct. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of looked at it and like, well, you know what? We can do this better. So we brought in a couple of elite athletes last year, started working with them, showing them what we could do, uh, utilizing these principles that you're an endurance athlete first and then who just happens to do strength and high intensity. And it worked. And so this year we decided to make it bigger. So we've got four athletes on our pro team. We've already got one coin on the list. Uh, in In his first race, wow. uh, he plays he plays top ten, and then uh, we've got a couple of girls who are heading down to uh, Vegas next weekend who will hopefully get their coins by then. And then as soon as Jeff Nelson or Jeff is back, um, he had back surgery just recently, so we're kind of rehabbing him. And as soon as he's back, he'll he'll be ready to go uh, very very soon.
0: Wow, that's awesome! So you're definitely off to an awesome start with that. Yeah. Sweet. Sure. well one of the I, I'm really excited to have you on here because we've actually had a couple other coaches mention you and um, talk about your training program so I was really excited that you agreed to do this and you, you know I'm always doing this podcast to get some insight for myself uh, as well as educate our, our listeners so um, I love what you said about that and how you have that endurance background and how many people kind of are forgetting that that is the whole point of, of the uh, this type of racing where it, it's a it's a run it's a race and it's very heavily endurance based but a lot of people are training for it only in the weight room and or only doing you know uh, olympic lifting or heavy squatting and things like that so i'd love to kind of pick your brain a little bit about endurance training and what are some steps maybe if somebody maybe they were doing that crossfit style of workout or, or just whatever type of high intensity style workout what are some simple things they can do in the beginning just to make that switch over to more of an endurance
3: based program yeah so uh, we have a uh Concept called the endurance pyramid, and unfortunately, I don't have any way to show you what it looks like because the pictures work much better. But you know, at the base of it, we always look at base endurance. What's your base endurance? How far can you travel? We use a one-hour time trial to kind of test that, and we just say, okay, how can you? How much land can you cover in an hour? And just go. Don't use a treadmill. Go outside. You know, don't use a track. I want to know how much land you can cover, whether it be undulating up and down, whether the you know with the weather condition, et cetera. I want to know how much you land can cover. And then we base everything off of that. So, you know, depending on how far they can cover, we may need to work more on your zone two training. We um, may need to work more on zone five or zone four, depending on where you're at. Uh, and it also depends on what time of the season it is. You know, if it's early season, uh, specifically winter into uh, early spring, building that endurance base is paramount. You know, it's people forget that. The, to go fast, you need to go slow first. Mm-hmm. And if you build that base really, really wide, say you start out at a 12-minute mile and be able to run that in zone two, which for most people, that's a talking pace. so They can have a conversation uh, while running. Um, if you can hold a 12-minute mile pace there, that's not bad. That's really good to start. But the goal should be somewhere around the 10 to 8-minute mile range, somewhere in there. And if you're an elite, 8-minute mile is an absolute must at that pace. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, if people are brand new, just starting out with that, it's it's hard. You know, they're going to be walking a lot more than they think they are.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but having that discipline and letting your body adapt to it and build up that mitochondrial density, build up that capillary density to the point where your body's more efficient, and the later on down the road when we start adding the high-intensity work, adding the sprints, adding those 10-minute hill climbs, they become easier, so much easier. And that's, you know, that, that long, slow distance is... The one piece that most people forget, especially people who do the high intensity, because you know they have one hour and they're like, oh, okay, you know, I've got an hour to train, which is great, but how you're using that hour? Are you using that hour effectively? And for us, long slow distance is the best way to use that time, especially in the early season.
0: Yeah, I, and I just I, I love that you say that because I feel like it's a constant struggle. A lot of the people that I coach, usually the first recommendation I give them is we need to stop doing non-stop high intensity because one it's a good way to overtrain and two it's to the point where you're not even doing high intensity anymore because you're so beat up you're kind of doing moderate intensity over and over again and you're doing the same thing over and over again and we need to back off and get some low intensity in there to make you more comfortable at that pace and and it's hard for some people if they're used to that high intensity because they they get done and sometimes they're like but I'm not covered in sweat or vomit or whatever. And they think that the only way to get an effective workout is when you push it as hard as possible.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I can't tell you how many athletes come into our place and, you know, they're coming from CrossFit gyms or these other gyms that do that kind of style. And we're just like, you know, if you leave here every day, feeling like that, we didn't do our job right. You know, some of these workouts should feel you should make you feel like you have more energy than when you came in. You know, it's, it's time to go easy. And when it's time to go easy, go really easy. When it's time to go hard, you go really hard. You know that's that's the rule, yeah, yeah, awesome.
0: Okay. so what would be the next level of that pyramid once we've built that endurance? And I guess I should back up. how How long are we doing something like
3: that? Is it I'm sure it depends on the athlete, but is there kind of a guideline that you follow? Uh, it depends on the athlete intent, depends on time of season, but generally, i would like I like to have the base building phase anywhere between eight to twelve weeks. Um, that's when you know we start our for our elites, especially, and even really anybody who's looking to do the early season races, we want to start that. Around November, um, after Worlds or after their last race of the year, we want to give them a couple of weeks off, and then after those two, after those couple of weeks off, we really start doing that long, slow distance. And it takes time, you know. Like I mentioned, your body has to adapt, and you know you can't you can't do an adaptation. You mean you can do an adaptation, but it's not a full adaptation in three weeks. That would be like the minimum time. Um, but ideally, you want about eight to twelve weeks of getting in this long, slow distance, gradually building up the distance that you can handle. So maybe you start at an hour and you build it up to about two and a half hours where you can just go and awesome. you can enjoy it. Um, after that, then you start, we start running into the next, the next phase of that pyramid, which is that, uh, it's, it's a long, we call it long, uh, long intervals okay. and, and running and cycling have two different ideas of what long intervals are. Cycling is an hour, but for running, it's about 15 to 20 minutes. And, that's when we start getting into a little bit of zone four, a little bit of zone three, and they kind of bounce back and forth. Um, but it's that higher echelon of zone three, right? Zone three traditionally is garbage miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when you're running so hard that you can have a con, you can talk, but you're like five to eight words at a time, you're kind of huffing and puffing a little bit. Um, and it's the, it's the pace you can hold in a race. And that's, you know, training in that zone, that's where a lot of runners train, and then they wonder why they don't get faster. It's because they're, t- they're going too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, when it gets into longer intervals, you kind of want to touch that upper end of that zone while going over into zone four. And depending on what the weather looks like or how the terrain looks like, it may flutter between the two. That's fine. 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of an interval, I mean, that's about roughly two miles if you're moving pretty quick, maybe two and a half if you're really fast. Um, it's a, that's a long time to hold that pace. Mm-hmm. And so that's normal. Um, and then that lasts another six weeks or so. and that can, And that starts getting really hard right? that Your body's going to start feeling that. And then the, you know, we still mix in the endurance base, you know, you still got to keep that long, slow distance going about two hours plus, but you've already built the base. So two hours plus shouldn't be that big of a deal anymore in in that phase. Um,
0: and, uh, just to interrupt you real quick. So with your long intervals, 15 to 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, how many intervals are you actually going through with, with something like that? I'm sure it depends on, on where they are in their, um, their training but uh typically what are you seeing
3: two two usually two or three if it's like a long day and somebody i've been working with for a couple of years i know they can handle three but usually it's two
0: okay and Um, how much uh recovery in between those
3: so those are a one-to-one you know you're going out for 15 minutes if you're doing an hour run a one-to-one will get it put you right there okay Uh, assuming you have a 10 minute warm-up and like a five minute cool down uh but if you want to go longer i usually schedule about 90 minutes for that so that they have time to fully recover and then fully warm up and fully cool down so usually an hour and a half is what it takes to to get that full training day in okay um All but right. yeah it's usually one to one um and then as they progress through that phase you can kind of chip away at the rest time uh depending on what the level of the athlete is, of course, if they're brand new, I wouldn't chip away at it. Mm -hmm. But if they've got some experience with running and have a couple of years of running under their belt, then yeah, I'd chip away a couple of minutes here, a couple of minutes there at their rest time to get their body to adapt, you know, to to recover quicker, to teach it to recover faster.
0: Awesome. And uh, as you're going through the the zones, um, how do you typically determine the zone they're in? So I know you mentioned kind of that talk test. Is that essentially what you're using? Are you using heart rates at all? Um, but what helps you
3: determine what zone they're actually in? So we put them through a torture test. We go for a We put them through a max heart rate test. Oh, nice. And we do it at our facility. We put them on a bike. And then um, and of course, you know, max heart rates are adjusted for mode. So on a bike, you're not going to hit as high of a heart rate as you possibly could, say, running or say doing CrossFit style workout. So we have to adjust it for that, and okay. typically I add anywhere between five to ten beats per minute, depending on the person and depending on how rested they are that day. Um, and then, and then I just calculate it out. You know, awesome. it's a plum percentage of max heart rate. Okay, cool. It's the old uh, Edmund Burke uh, style from the he used to do these uh physiology stuff for cyclists, mm-hmm. and I've, I've got just all of his books sitting in my house. Oh, awesome! Nice. <laughs>
0: Well, cool. All right. So we have our base endurance. We start yeah. working on some long intervals. Uh, so now what are we off to?
3: So as soon as the four, four to five weeks or so of those longer intervals, that's when you're going to start making the interval short. Now it, now when you move into these shorter call medium distance intervals, you're going to want to give yourself a break, you know, go, going into that immediately, you're going to be pretty burned out and your body is just not ready to handle that kind of stress. So normally I give people about a week off. And this usually coincides pretty well with going into the race season. So when I give them that week off, it's usually three weeks out before their first race, and so we're ra- we're racing into shape, if you will. Mm-hmm. So give them that week off, and then we come back on three to five minute intervals. Great coaches who who like doing distance. For me, um, I always like time because time, you know, partially because time is easier to for an athlete you know they can look at their watch like okay i've got three minutes go um it's also easier to uh, have that translate across the world so since i've got athletes in the philippines and australia and denmark if i use miles they may not know what those are yeah yeah So, so i use time um and uh the other rule as far as like what training – when you do training that we use is if you can't memorize the workout before you leave, it's too complicated. Simplify it. <laughs> so so if you're going to do five-minute intervals, stick to five minutes. If you're going to do three minutes, stick to three. If you're going to do 10, stick to 10. Whatever it is, your your goal of training that day needs to have a very – it has to have a specific point. So if you're doing a bunch of one minutes and three minutes and five minutes and six minutes everywhere, it becomes too erratic and your body doesn't know what you really want it to do. And there are times for that, absolutely, but that's more race uh, mimicking because you're because that's what a race feels like.. Yeah. But in training, you need to the whole point of training is to get your body to respond a very certain way, to adapt a very to a very specific set of stresses. And if you're constantly changing up what those stresses are, your body doesn't really know how to adapt to that. Awesome. So, like I said, memorize the workout. So it's five you know three to five minutes is that next phase, and we'll mix sometimes. We'll mix in some sprints here and there, to keep it interesting. But for the most part, it's three to five minutes and you're always throwing in that long slow distance day. Okay. You know, it's, you're, I never I, I never take my eye off it. you know, it's, no matter what they're doing, no matter what phase they're in, they're always gonna have a couple of hours where they're just gonna go and cruise. Mm-hmm. It, it helps people mentally, you know and, and it keeps that sharp. So you, know, you have going to a beast, for example, and it's a three hour long race, if you haven't been training at two and a half hours, if you've been training at an hour, there's a good chance that come around that two hour mark your body's just going to want to quit on you
0: yeah for sure so um how far out would you recommend somebody plans out their program for a race
3: so you know for us when he talks about like things like specificity and we get into you know okay how much time do you actually need to get ready for a race um normally we say six weeks you know when you start getting really specific mm-hmm. uh, four weeks before that ideally would be would be when you're building the base um, getting the base you know not just your endurance base but some base level strength so in my mind 10 weeks is about perfect okay cool
0: so you can pretty much be doing that like building that base for a good part of the year and then when you have your race that you're trying to to peak for if it's one or maybe two, if it's worlds or or just maybe your first Spartan race ever, um, you kind of just work backwards from that yep. point, and yep. then see so, when you now, see to get need to start getting a little bit more specific with your training.
3: Exactly. So when we when we have our athletes first come in, we always have them create a build their calendar right with all their races, so that me as a coach I can plan their their season backwards. It's all it's so much easier to plan backwards than it is to plan forwards. Oh, definitely.
0: Awesome. So since you have a lot of uh, endurance in there. Do you have any issues with with injuries that, um, or, or are you doing anything maybe to fight back those longer distances? Just because it is going to be a little bit more impact on the on the athletes.
3: Mm-hmm. So as the distances get longer, we like to go off road. So we found that off road tends to be a little less impactful on the joints, um, as opposed to on the road. You know, and let's be honest, most Spartan races aren't done on the road. Yeah. So, you know, it that that helps out. You know, with your body learning. Okay, my ankles need to be a little bit more mobile. Um, feet need to be a little bit more mobile, but when we're doing that base building in the wintertime, at least here in Utah, it, there's a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. And so going off road isn't, isn't always an option. And so we build in a lot of mobility. Uh, if you look at our training plans, you will always find a, some kind of mobility complex and whether it's shoulders, hips, um, or it could be ankles and feet, you know, we like using the cross ball on the feet a lot, you know, doing a lot of ankle mobility, a lot of, uh, hip mobility, and just building from the from the ground up, essentially, so that people when they con- when they hit the ground, you know, even if they hit it wrong, their body can adjust to it and and keep moving without breaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and I think that's such a big part that a lot of times people think they get hurt or or the main way to prevent injury is is just getting stronger and stronger, which obviously strength is going to be important to all this. But they forget if if you can't move, all the strength in the world's not going to help you there.
3: Yeah. And if you look at people like Rob Shaw, who I, you know, I look up to that guy a lot. He taught me a lot about how, you know, how to do the general purpose programming. Mm -hmm. Um, He does, his whole, his whole idea is that strength is king. And he's, I don't, and I don't necessarily think he's wrong. I think that's a great idea that, you know, when you look at things like boot camp, the guys that are the stronger guys going into boot camp or going into like, um, buds for seals. They tend to have fewer injuries because their bodies are a little bit stronger. They can handle that kind of stress, mm-hmm. and and that's a, that's great. But with Spartan races, the endurance is is king because it is a running race. Mm-hmm. So having enough strength that you can withstand some of these injuries, to especially like the shoulders, that's where the bigger strength numbers can be um, for those. But realistically speaking, you know you have a power to weight ratio going on mm-hmm. for these kind of and you need to keep the weight low, which means you can't put a ton of size on somebody. Um, but you can still build strength. you know I mean strength is a strength isn't always related to size. It's it's a very delicate de- delicate dance this whole with with OCR especially. you know I mean you look at some of these guys and they're just you know monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, look, you know look at the guys who are winning and they're not very big, yeah. But these little guys are still able to move that tire, which now weighs 400 pounds. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they have an incredibly high power-to-weight ratio, which is fantastic. Um, and building that does take time. Yeah. You know, it's and because you because you can't just forget endurance. Cause, I mean, I can build any athlete up to be like, okay, yeah, let's deadlift 500 pounds. It's great, but can you run five miles? Mm-hmm. Forty minutes. You know, and most and most of them can't say yes to both of those.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I, I want to get uh, touch on strength training a little bit with you, but I just um, the point you brought up about shoulders too. It's yeah, even like you know the monkey bars and the rig and you know any of those heavy upper body strength requiring obstacles, people can muscle their way through if they have that strength. But they're also the ones that often get the the shoulder issues because they can't be in a hanging position. Now they might get through the obstacle, but then they're screwed for the rest of the race or they're going to have to skip out on a couple of races because they just destroyed their shoulder because they couldn't lift their arm over their head yet mm-hmm. they're hanging from a monkey bar.
3: So I'm actually one of those people I I've had, I've had well, as of last weekend eight dislocations on my shoulder now. Oh nice. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's something that I've brought with me like okay, you know, I've got this experience as far as okay, how do you keep yourself from getting hurt? You know, for, especially for things like the monkey bars, where it's like if you externally rotate your shoulder too much, you're going to have some serious problems. Mm-hmm. And we started working with active hangs as opposed to dead hangs. So dead hangs are great, you know, to build a, to build a grip strength, but to be able to build up the muscular endurance to handle some of those obstacles, we do a lot of active hangs with our elites now.
0: Awesome. And, and what do you mean exactly by active hangs?
3: So elbows have to stay bent. Okay, gotcha. So it's an, it's just keeping it engaged. Gotcha. You know. We, Playing around with towel holds now as you know, putting two towels over a pull-up bar and then having them do active hangs just hanging from towels. And they don't like me very much right now.
0: But yeah, but they'll thank you later because you know, you see so many people going through these obstacles completely hanging. And one, all of the weight they're just putting right on that joint. But if you slip or just one little mishap, you're you're going down and doing burpees, where the ones that can keep that elbow bend. You know, even if they mess up, they're still high enough where they may drop a little bit, but they can recover and and keep going and not destroy their shoulder in the process. So, exactly,
3: we talk we talk a lot about distance of movement. So, if you're, you know, if you have an active hang, the distance from one bar to the next is actually shorter than if you're just dead hanging. You know, because you've got to get even more momentum swinging when you're just dead hanging as opposed to active hang so there's a there's just a lot of different ways how do you conserve energy and we're kind of just breaking starting to break it down even more on okay conservation of energy but you know how do we keep you going using the least amount through the obstacles so you can actually run afterwards instead of your instead of jogging
0: yeah awesome well let's so let's go into strength training a little bit and i know that's kind of a loaded question but we talked a lot about building endurance so how does uh, – well, we know how strength plays a role in all of this, but what are your thoughts on, on
3: programming as far as strength? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so we use a lot of different programming styles. In fact, we're testing a couple new styles out uh, this next phase. I'm, I'm testing out a, what's called a density style, um, and my brother, Matt, is testing out a longer eccentric hold as opposed to our shorter version, which is four seconds. Um, but when you're building up strength – so we like to test one rep maxes a lot. Okay. You know, a lot of it has to do with getting over the fear of testing one rep maxes. We've um, noticed especially women tend to be really afraid of it. You know, they don't they don't want to go heavy or they they think that it's going to make them bulky or maybe they're just afraid of getting hurt. Um, and getting them past that idea that okay, you know, this is just a barbell or it's just a dumbbell, it's not going to hurt you. You know, you have a coach here, we'll take care of you, and then teaching them how to bail properly. So, you know, all of those things kind of play a role. So we start doing a lot of one rep maxes. At least at the beginning, and then start doing our rep schemes for the for the Spartan racers, especially, revolve around a eight of three and six of five, um, and we always do total bodies. So you're always going to get some kind of total body movement, whether it be a power clean or a hang clean or some deadlift high pole, or maybe it's a sandbag throw or something like that, um, and then you're always going to get an upper an upper um, slower movement, so a squat, deadlift, etc immediately followed by an explosive movement. So you have to use the same muscle groups in two very different ways. Um, and then we do a push-pull for your upper body to balance everything out. Okay. And where things fit into the rep schemes, it they, they rotate. So say we're doing eight of three for hang cleans one week. Normally we'll throw in a dead hang or an active hang after that. And then you'll do lower body, um, slow movement, explosive movement, and then a push-pull for the upper after that. And then the next week it'll rotate so that you have the eight of three for lower body, with the explosive movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Awesome, that, that's that's great. Um, so, what what would a typical week? And again, I know loaded question, and, and it'll depend on a lot of um, uh, of the athlete's individual needs. But what would a typical week look like between their running program and their their strength program? Like, are they training every day, a couple days a week?
3: So we like to we like to do five days of hard training, one day of active recovery, and then one day of total recovery. Okay. Uh, three of those days are usually going to be running, uh, at least in the early season. One of those days will be strength, and one of them will be what we call work capacity. That's your high intensity stuff. Mm-hmm. And we stick to either five minutes or ten minute workouts for those high intensity ones. And you'll get multiple workouts in a day. So we call them five five five, or ten ten days. Um, and then, as the as it progresses, you'll start seeing running cu- coming in uh, during the at, during the strength day in the morning. You know, we like to do sober runs a lot at, or hill climbs. Mm-hmm. And so, depending on where you are in the phase, you know, of course, the amount of running, the the st- sheer volume of running is going to change, you know, and the strength stuff is change as well. So, let's start with off season. So, off season, three days of running, two days of strength, one day of work cap. One of those runs is considered a recovery. So it's a shorter version of a, of a long slow distance, about 45 minutes. Um, and then we have a total recovery. So there's you know, that's six days of training, one day of recovery. During the preseason, it's gonna be you're gonna have a month the early, well, usually Monday is an interval day because you know you're coming off a rest. We'd like to do since we're in Utah, we have to do rest days on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um And so we do, uh, Mondays are an interval day. Tuesdays are a high-intensity day with a sober run in the morning. And I'll go over sober runs, what those are here in a second. Um, Wednesday will be a strength day with a hill climb run. And then Thursday will be a yoga, one-hour yoga. Friday will be a a high-intensity day with a run in the morning. And then Saturday will be your long, slow distance. Nice and then Sunday will be your day off. And because we're in Utah, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of Mormons here. So a lot of them don't like to train on Sundays or race on Sundays, mm-hmm. which is kind of a challenge for us. Uh, but for most people, if they're going to train on Sundays, because Sundays, you know, that usually opens up a lot of time so they can do longer days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would make Monday the recovery day then. Awesome. You know, so take, so take Monday off. Yeah. Um, now our sober runs, sober runs is how we control like uh, body composition, you know, and we don't, you, we don't do this a lot during the season. It's usually only in the preseason, but it's a 30 to 40 minute run. Super, super easy. You know, I mean, almost, it's pretty much a jog, but you do it before you eat. So you wake up first thing in the morning, you maybe drink a glass of water, you know, put the leash on the dog and then go run for 40 minutes. Super easy. And then when you get home, you eat whatever you want. And then ideally three to four hours after that run is when your next training session will be ideally. Um, what that, what that uh, shoots up your metabolism for a long training day, as opposed to only two hours of actual training.
0: Nice. So I know, uh, I don't want to, we could probably talk about this for hours, but I don't want to take up your whole day on your, on your training program. But, um, I think what you gave is incredibly valuable and kind of laying out there exactly what people need to do for, for a program. Um, is there anything I missed or skipped or, or forgot to ask you that I, you think I should have brought up?
3: Um, no, I mean, when we, and the only thing I can think of is maybe, maybe a little bit of specificity kind of thing. So like when do we start working on obstacles, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and that's usually the big question, especially for new people. Yeah, um, They come in here like, Oh, we want to do the rope climb. Well, okay, great. But can you hold a, you know, can you hold a towel for 30 seconds first? Um, and so when we look at like, okay, specificity, how many times can you do an obstacle and be able to stay fresh enough that you can still train. Um, so we try not to get too, you know, for us as a gym, we try, you know, we like to teach the techniques and, and get people familiar, at least with the apparatus. But we don't build workouts around the apparatus. So, you know, when it comes to monkey bars, learning how to do the monkey bars is great. But if you constantly are training a monkey bars, say, you know, we actually tried this last year just to see what would happen. And we did a seven rounds uh, a workout where it was an 800 meter run followed by one round of monkey bars followed by 20 burpees mm-hmm. which on the surface. It sounded like a great workout except that the monkey bars tore up the athlete's hands and now they were out for a couple of days until their hands healed. And so we came to the conclusion that, you know, doing something like that, especially an obstacle that's high failure rate, maybe doing the obstacle that many times and trying to get people familiar with it, isn't the best course of action. So we started switching up thing, you know, switching things up and saying, okay, We'll do monkey bars once so they get familiar with it, and then we work on the work on the active hang, working on uh, maintaining momentum. So, but the bicycle kick that we teach, and then maybe try it again later. But you only get to try it, you know, once every four or five weeks, as opposed to doing a workout that you're going to hit it seven times through. So it's you know we and it's constantly evolving. You know, I mean we we've kind of gotten through the idea of you know maybe trying some things like bear crawls and low crawls and things like that in workouts which work great but you know for us the idea of doing only obstacles as part of your workout is a little short-sighted you know just because we don't feel like any of these obstacles are i mean they could be thrown anywhere you know you could get a completely different obstacle that maybe you didn't train for and now that your brain is programmed to do it a certain way well now that's not an option now you gotta rethink it and so getting away from that muscle memory of okay you do it like this every single time is pretty important for us
0: yeah and i mean i think that's great advice just because a lot of people get so caught up on the obstacles and they'll do it over and over and over again and yeah they tear up their hands or now their elbows bothering them or their shoulder or whatever just because again another form of overtraining mm-hmm. um so I, yeah i just think have your strat, uh, sessions where you're just working on technique and practicing not necessarily every workout needs to be an obstacle-based workout. Exactly. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Um, so I know you do. You offer online coaching going over uh, everything that we just went through in a lot more detail. Um, if anyone's interested, where could they find out more information about that?
3: So they can either email me, uh, Chris J-U-D-Y, J-D-Y, at rftcoaching.com, or they can go to our our website, rftcoaching.com. If you go to our uh, schedule page, uh, we're still kind of in the in the middle of trying to switch things up a little bit make it a little bit more user friendly but if you go to our schedule page and you scroll down uh, you can see all the different offers we have for online coaching um, we re- we have the uh, super custom like completely 100% custom coaching um, where you get unlimited contact with us either myself or or my brother all the way down to semi custom coaching which we're going to put you in a group and all of you know group of five to 10 and those five to 10 people are going to get all the same coaching. You get limited, a little bit less contact with us, but you'll we'll still answer questions and, you know, keep things and keep people in the loop. But all of those include a training peaks account. You know, that's, that's incredibly valuable for us as coaches to be able to analyze what's going on and to plan later, you know, the bigger, you know, to create a bigger plan. Um, so yeah, they all include that. They all, you know, we have a setup fee. It's just a one-time $50 fee for this, you know, to get the training peak set up, get your initial testing done so that we can build your zones. But other than that, you know, it's, we've got all that stuff set up. So, Sweet. um, and then we also have off the stuff that, at, at RFT coaching as well. You know, we have our, our OCR class and we have our mountain fitness, like I mentioned before. Um, and with two, both of them are, little bit different goals, but I mean, I use mountain fitness to get ready for obstacle course racing and it's, it works fantastic.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And I'll put links in our show notes for this episode. So anybody listening, they can just head over to that and, and check it out and see all the different programs that you offer. And, um, also I know you're, you said you're working on actual certification program as well. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us any more about that?
3: Yeah. So our certification program that we're currently, uh, we're testing, we're doing beta testing with interns right now, as well as having other coaches kind of read through it and give us feedback. Uh, it's going to be mostly centered around programming. It's very, very programming-heavy as opposed to, say, like a physiology-heavy certification. Um, we'll go into some of the physiology, but we kind of expect you to already know, have the basics, mm-hmm. um, particularly NASM or NSCA or you know a degree program or whatever. Um, and then we just kind of get – we delve really deep into – the, the, our five pillars of fitness, which are the uh, strength, work capacity, stamina, endurance, and mobility, and we just go through all of, all of those, teach you how to program, teach you how to come up with new ideas, so that you know you're not in the dark. Because I don't know how many times I've looked at NSCA and they kind of touch you how to teach you how to program, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. And, and we want to kind of fill in that gap where there's not really any question, and you know we can give you something that you know is going to work, and then you can kind of branch off from there you know, we, we encourage further, further testing and, and further experience. And so we're working on that. We also, we're also have the, uh, the endurance piece, um, where we're starting to expand on our endurance side. So creating a a second certification process for endurance after this one is done. So there's a, there's a lot of things coming down the road. Um, hopefully we'll have these, this, at least the initial certification, the, the advanced programming class up and ready to go by this summer. Awesome. And that'll run about I want to say seven hundred and fifty to to a thousand dollars a person. It'll it'll be an entire week, so you'll get classroom time and then you'll get practical time where you're gonna actually write programs. We're gonna and we're gonna break it down to see how we can make it better, and then you're gonna actually coach each other. So and then and then the testing for it will be you'll you'll have a written test, a uh, actual hands-on coaching a client uh, test, as well as a fitness test.
0: Nice. Oh, that'd be incredibly practical. And I know we have coaches on here uh, listening, so I'll make sure I'll keep following up with you. And when that stuff is ready to go, I'll I'll make sure we we make an announcement, and put it on our website, so people can check that out. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. I knew you were gonna over deliver with everything that you gave, and uh, you definitely didn't disappoint. So I know our listeners are gonna be able to take this and and apply it to their programs and and see dramatic improvements in their training. So thank you so much.
3: No, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll hopefully see you out
0: on the course somewhere. Yep. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for episode 27 of the Underground SGX Show. Don't forget, you can check out all the show notes at spartanunderground.com slash episode 27. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you picked up a few great tips. Don't forget to head over to iTunes and give us a review if we gave you any good insight into training and definitely subscribe to the show so you get all the latest episodes. I want to make sure I thank all of our SGX coaches for coming on today. Mark Barroso for giving us the race recap in New York. Also wanted to thank Coach Anne LaRue for coming on and going over one of her latest articles about the lies that most people believe about dieting that she posted on Spartan. She'll be back to finish that topic and talk about the truths shortly. And then finally, Coach SGX coach Chris Judy for coming on and just giving us a, an awesome blueprint for how he trains his elite endurance athletes and definitely some tips for you to uh, implement into your training program if you're looking for more resources on spartan race training definitely check out our website spartanunderground.com if you want to check it out for just a dollar for your first three days you can go to spartanunderground.com join and you can check out all the resources for just a buck for three days well that's going to do it for today wishing you the best of luck for your next race and we will see you back soon